let's pray together before I speak. Oh God, we thank you so much for salvation. Salvation from the clutches of death and sin and the new life that you bring. And I pray today, Lord, as I speak, that you will send your spirit not only to be with me, but also to be with the congregation so that they will have ears to hear what you want them to hear. Even those, Lord, who are listening back to this on the recording, Lord, I pray that you will speak through me today. Make your gospel, your good news known to those who are listening in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. I'm not sure if you've ever looked forward to something really so much and you're really looking forward to it. It's going to be great. And then it ends up being even better and bigger than you'd even dare to imagine. Um, when I first went to Wembley Stadium, I don't know if anyone has ever been to Wembley Stadium before. No, some people may have. I have. It's, it's a huge place. Um, I went in uh, 1996 to uh, Euro 96. I went to see England play Scotland. And um, I know that I'm quite old about this because it's before Jonathan was even born. Uh, so I'm feeling pretty old about that. <laughs> But I, I'd been to a few football grounds beforehand. I support Bristol City. I'd been to see Bristol City play in that ground. And there was about 20,000 people, you know, in that. Is, you know, that's quite big. That's quite big. But I, nothing had prepared me to go in to Wembley Stadium. And I walked up the concourse and thought, wow, this looks really big. And I went inside. I gave my ticket with my dad. I was only about 10 at the time. And... We walked up the steps and you you walked up and you looked at the expanse of this stadium and there were 80,000 people in this this ground, this huge stadium. And my mouth just went oh, like that, this huge place and the sound roaring up from it was just bigger than I could ever imagine. And I had a great day. England beat Scotland, which I was very pleased about. Um, but I just, I remember that feeling of it. Sorry, Liz, about that. <laughs> um, but it was so much bigger than I can imagine. And I think this is a little bit like the Book of Romans that we're, we're talking about now. This is this huge book, which and all of scripture, of course, is God breathed. But this book of Romans has a very special place, doesn't it, in in our scripture. Uh, it's such an important book. You look at Christian history and, you know, people like Augustine and Martin Luther, John Wesley, they can say that, you know, they read like a verse of Romans, this amazing book, and it just changed everything for them. There's something about this book of Romans, which is really special. And I'm really excited that we're doing this book. And um, I just wonder, though, at times when we think about Romans, whether our vision is, is a little bit too small about what we think God has done in Jesus Christ. And uh, I want to look at this chapter today, chapter five, where Paul talks about the immensity uh, of what he's done. I'm going to go a bit beyond chapter five as well, because the next one in our series, Lynn is speaking about chapter eight. Uh, so I'm going to be kind of covering chapter five, but also looking at chapter six and chapter seven um, about that. So let's have a think about this together. Let's look at the background um, for the last few weeks as well. We've, we've been looking at the first little section in Romans, 
which is chapters one to four. This makes this first little section of Paul's argument of what he's trying to say. Um, in the first week, Peter spoke really powerfully on the power of the gospel and the simplicity of that power of this gospel. Then Dan and Arthur also unpacked the complexities of the law and grace and what does it mean uh, to be maybe Jewish and Gentile and what does it mean for Paul to, to say about what this gospel means. And uh, this first section, chapters one to four, Paul is really speaking about the, the meaning and process of justification. Um, all have fallen short and, you know, fallen short of the glory of God. But God in his grace has chosen to justify us and take upon him in Jesus our sin so that we are free. Paul says everyone is in the same boat in these first few chapters. So you don't get to boast if you're Jewish or Gentile. Everyone's fallen short and you are justified. But we go on to chapter five. And what does he start by saying with chapter five, verse one, as Liz just read it? Therefore, since we are justified by faith. Like sometimes you might kind of think, well, Paul could have just stopped at chapter four, couldn't he? He's outlined how we're justified. We're justified by grace. Jesus has died on the cross and we are forgiven for our sins. You could just stop there. But this next section, chapters five through to chapter eight, is about the consequences of that justification. And I think it's one of the most exciting sections in the whole of scripture, this, this section, chapter five to eight in Romans. There have been whole theological movements that have been started through this little section of Romans. And I think my first point is really based on that, what I've just been saying. The first point is, Paul is saying that salvation is more than just justification, okay? Those are some big phrases, so I'll try and unpack them. I think there's a common understanding, isn't there, that salvation is a bit like being in a court of law. You know, I don't know if anyone's ever uh, given evidence in a court of law. Uh, I've actually got, um, I was called up in January to do a jury service. I postponed it because of lockdown and everything. So I'm going to have to do that again next January, probably. I know Trish has done it and one or two others have done it as well, jury service. And it's a bit like we are in the dock and we are condemned by the devil and our sin is against us. And Jesus comes along and he takes the sin upon himself. And therefore, we can go free. We are given a just uh, justification. The judge says, you are free. Now, I'm not saying that that's not right. That is absolutely part of the gospel. But what happens when we walk out of court? What happens when we've been justified and gone free? Are we just the same? Do we, uh, do we just go on living exactly the same as we were before? No, this is what Paul is saying in this section. There's more than that. We're often told, aren't we, to put things down at the foot of the cross. We put our sin, we put our burdens down. Of course, that's true. Absolutely, that's true. But we also pick something up, don't we? What does it say in verse 10? Uh, Paul says in verse 10 of Romans chapter 5, For if, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved 
by his life. Much more will we be saved by his life. In this first little section of chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Paul says that we have three lots of things. And I'm going to bring it up here on the PowerPoint. Okay. So we be, we're saved by his life. So we have peace and reconciliation. Verse 1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Verse 11. We even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We are reunited with God. So this is one of the things we pick up. Sin, when sin entered the world, it says in verse 12, um, it broke our relationship with God. We were divorced from our maker. And so we get to be reconciled with God through the spirit. That's the first thing. Second thing, we get hope. Verse two, we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Verse four, endurance produces character and character produces hope. And verse five, hope does not disappoint us. Life without hope is pretty bleak, isn't it? This year, we've all had to, to live with this pandemic. You know, what's going to happen? We, we hope it's going to finish, but we're not sure what's going to happen. But this hope that Paul speaks about is more than just the hope that even this pandemic will end or, you know, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. It's the hope that the world will be reconciled to God. That in Revelation 21, it says there'll be no more suffering and pain. This, this hope goes a lot deeper than that. And finally, in this first section, we get to boast. We boast. Verse two, we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Verse three, we boast even in our sufferings. That doesn't mean we have to keep a smiley face the whole time when things go wrong. But somehow we find a deeper joy that we can boast in. Because God's love goes deeper than the swirling winds of life. Okay, so the first point I want to raise is this, that uh, we pick something up as well as putting things down. We are saved from sin and death, but we are also saved for something, for new life. Jesus says we are saved. Um, he wants life and life to the full. So we don't just give you know, we don't just put things down. We take something up. It's bigger than just being justified. We are sanctified as well. We are sanctified in the spirit for new life as well as that. OK, that's the first point. The second point is that salvation is more than just about me and God. And it's even more than just about people and god okay this is a this is another point about how big it is it is cosmic salvation is cosmic it involves the whole of creation after verses 1 to 11 in this chapter paul starts speaking about adam and christ and he introduces these new characters called sin and death now i don't know what you hear when you hear the phrase sin and you hear the phrase death, but it, you know, it might be something along the lines of, well, sin is my own personal sin. It is something I do when I do bad things. And it's something that, that stops me from loving God. And, and Jesus has come and saved me from my sins. 
And again, that is true, absolutely. But it's not just something that affects us as individuals. We sometimes have this picture, don't we? God is here, I'm here, and my sin gets in the way of, of me and God. But I'm going to say that Paul has a bigger picture of what sin and death are. For Paul, it's much bigger. I want to introduce you to some characters that I've got. I want you to wave. Everyone wave. Say hello to sin and death. Hi, sin and death. <laughs> this is sin and death. These are my friends. Although I don't really want them to be my friends because they're pretty bad. They're not very good. Um, it says in Romans 5 verse 12 sin came into the world by one man and sin came and condemned us and in this little section of romans chapters 5 to 7 5 to 8 sin and death get up to all kinds of things and they're kind of personified by paul so let's have a look uh, one theologian even kind of said that they have it's almost like they have a career um, so let's have a look and see what, what sin and death get up to in these chapters. I'm just going to read these because I think it's really interesting to note. Chapter 5, verse 11, sin entered the world and through sin came death. Thus death entered into all people. Verse 14, death ruled as a king from Adam to Moses. That's another way of saying sin exercised dominion. Uh, verse 17, death ruled as a king or exercised dominion through the transgression of one person. Verse 20, sin multiplied. 21, sin exercised dominion, ruled as a king. Chapter six, death no longer lords it over Christ. 6:12, do not let sin rule as a king in your mortal body. Verse 13, do not present your members, your body parts to sin as weapons of wrong. Verse 14, sin will not lord it over you. Verse 6, 17, you are slaves of sin. Chapter 7, sin took the commandment as a ground of operation and produced in me every desire. 7, 11, sin took taking a ground of operation through the commandment, deceived me and killed me through the commandment. Verse 14, I am sold under the power of sin. Paul even says in 7, 17, sin lives in me. So the picture we get in these chapters of, of Romans is that sin and death is not so much choices we make or things that we do, but they are personified powers that rule over human life and the whole of the cosmos. Paul says even in chapter eight that the whole of creation is groaning and waiting for liberation from such powers as sin and death. And I don't know if you know sin and death, I certainly do, but I just want to show you some of the work of sin and death in the world. Let's have a look and see some of the work of sin and death, these, these personified powers. This is the work of sin and death, the Holocaust, bullying, teasing, making people feel terrible, domestic violence cancer or even the pandemic racism addiction and hopelessness 
despair and divorce from God and from others. We could go on and on, couldn't we? This is the work of sin and death in the world. Evil is not just the absence of good, according to Paul, but there is real power behind it. These powers have devastating consequences in the world and they specialize in hopelessness. What are these powers then? It's not easy to explain, but Paul talks in his letters about powers and principalities. And we hear these words, don't we? Powers and principalities. And we often kind of think maybe about demons flying around in the sky. And uh, absolutely, I want to affirm that powers and principalities, yes, are demons. But um, sorry, demons are powers and principalities. They, 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 they do fly around to some extent, but not all uh, powers and principalities are demons. OK, not all powers and principalities are demons. Powers and principalities can be anything. In, in chapter eight, Paul says that they can be anything like height and depth, rulers and angels. Powers and principalities are anything that is created that is meant to serve God and serve us, but try and take our allegiance away from God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Everyone with me with that? Powers and principalities are anything created like the Sabbath, for instance. I've talked about this before. The Sabbath was created good, but it's taken on a kind of power of its own. And human beings like the Pharisees started to serve the Sabbath. And sin and death are these powers that kind of take us captive and, and we're there. So one theologian uh, called Beverly Gaventa, she puts it like this. I'm going to bring it up on the screen. I think this helps to explain it. To put it sharply and succinctly, through these three chapters, five to seven, we meet these superhuman powers. That's, that's kind of powers that are greater and bigger than us by the names of sin and death. Taking advantage of the disobedience of Adam, says in verse 12 that sin entered the world through Adam when Adam fell. Sin and death make their own way into the world and establish themselves as its rulers. They have humankind under their control, all humankind. They are so powerful that they can even make use of God's holy law, as it says in chapter 7. Even those who, like the speaker in chapter 7, love God's law and are committed to obeying that law, sin and death are only defeated by God's action in Jesus Christ. Let's take that off. We need to repent. As Jenny said last week, we need to repent, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. That is so true. And Jenny absolutely nailed it last week, I think, on that sermon of Pentecost. But before we are able to do this, before we're able to repent, the problem was bigger than our own individual sin. We need forgiving. Jesus makes that absolutely clear. But what Paul is saying here is we also need delivering, deliverance and liberating from these powers of sin and death that hold us captive. The picture is almost a bit like this. I'm going to bring it up online. 
the thing. God is here. And we are enslaved, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 17. We are enslaved to sin and death. It's almost as if we, we, we cannot help but do it. I don't know sometimes about you if, if you know, if there's something that you, you find really difficult. I find chocolate really hard, for instance. Sometimes if I'm really hungry, you know, my, uh, this is a very small example, but I find it really hard to kind of say no to chocolate when someone offers it to me. My disposition is, is kind of magnetized towards this thing. And it's the same Paul says with sin. We are captive to sin we can't help it and what we need is god to come in and to to liberate us from this power it's the same words i love the hymn of charles wesley um you know how can it be that i should gain and, and it says in the, the middle verse it said long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night thine eye diffused a quickening ray i rose the dungeon flamed with light my chains fell off my heart was free i rose went forth and followed thee so that's the second point we need uh saving and this 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 salvation is cosmic it involves the whole of creation which is is in bondage to sin and jesus comes and he liberates us the third and final point is that god is more powerful than sin and death these powers they think that they rule but actually god is more powerful verse 15 says but the free gift is not like the trespass for if the many died through one man's trespass adam much more surely have grace of god and the free gift in grace of the one man jesus christ abounded for many the outcome of this battle between god and these evil malignant powers is not in doubt okay god has already won Paul says elsewhere in uh, Colossians verse 2, so chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example over them, triumphing over them on the cross. That's what it is. In Ephesians 1, it says, uh, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he's put all these things under his feet and made him head over all things for the church. I've used this analogy in the in the past, but I'm going to use it again because I think it's it's good. It's almost as if I, I started off playing football. I always like using football analogies. <laughs> there is a football match and the, the greatest ever football victory i think happened in 2001 australia were playing um i think one of the islands around them and they weren't very very good and the score was uh, i'm going to bring it up on screen it was 31 nil <laughs> to australia that's pretty big isn't it that's basically a goal every three minutes and what paul's kind of saying is like it's like playing football god 
has won 31 nil but we come on for about the last five minutes so the victory is not in doubt or a cricket score that's right jonathan thank you for that the result isn't in doubt god we know that at the end of history god is going to win that victory is secure god has defeated those powers but the, these powers still don't know that they've been defeated look at the world around us they still wreak havoc among the world there's still war there's still famine there's still you know bullying there's still horribleness but these powers need to be told by us the church that they do not have authority anymore here and in fact we are the community of people that are meant to embody what it looks like if these powers don't have a power anymore Jesus has defeated them on the cross. For the first time in history, there has been a life that has been lived. Jesus Christ, he has lived completely not captive to these powers. He's put to death human, human sin on the cross. He's put to death human nature. And when he's raised to death, he is risen. This is quite a complex argument in some ways. I hope you're kind of with me on this. When Jesus is risen from the dead, he, he, he raises to life a new kind of life that is not captive to these powers of sin and death anymore. That's what Paul is saying. And when we live in him, we do not have to be captive to these powers either. So Paul asks the question in the next chapter, chapter six. He says, OK, so, um, you know, just as one man's trespass has led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification. Jesus Christ, he's defeated the powers. Great. First verse, chapter six. Does that mean that we have to live in sin anymore? Do we just keep sinning because Jesus has won already? No, not at all. By no means. You've been set free from this power to sin. You're not enslaved anymore. You've been liberated. So this is why Paul, in all of his letters, he gets so angry at the different churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Galatia. He says, what are you doing? You've been set free from these powers of sin and death. Why are you caring about who you know, sits at the, the best places at the tables? Why, why are you trying to be the most important? Why are you caring about these things that you're eating anymore? Don't you know you've been set free and you are set free to love one another? You can take the worst places at the table. What are you doing? You are set free in this new life of Christ. Do you not know? He kind of exasperated about these people. I think I'm going to start doing this, you know, when if there's pettiness within our church. And there is, you know, at times. And I'm, I'm often you know, at the source of this, and someone can say it to me. You know, what are you doing? Why are you competing with each other? Why are you being mean to each other? Why are you not sharing this new resurrected love with each other? That's what Paul is saying. And that's also why in Paul's letters, we get this, the main stance when it comes to spiritual warfare is not offensive. It's actually defensive isn't it stand firm stand firm the spiritual war is actually won by God not by us and we our job is to stand firm in Jesus Christ 
That's what Paul says again and again and again. Stand firm. We just need to stand on him, this firm foundation. Okay, I hope some of that has made sense. I'm going to just review it again. The gospel is bigger and better than sometimes we imagine. We have been saved not only from sin, but for new life. Salvation is cosmic. It involves the whole of creation. And God is more powerful than the powers of sin and death, these personified powers that have an agency of their own. OK, we're going to respond now by singing a song which has meant quite a lot to me in recent years. Um, it's called No Longer Slaves. Uh, it doesn't actually talk about sin and death specifically, but it talks about fear, which is one of the results of sin and death, I'm sure. And you may not know the words, that's fine, but if you do sing them along, if not, just, just, just listen to the words. It's so powerful. We have been liberated from these powers. So Anna, if you can um, share this song, that would be great. Thank you. You unravel me. 